Good to see you all this morning. We are in the middle of a journey with Jesus. I, I mean that broadly, of course, as disciples of Jesus Christ, but I also mean this sermon series that we're working our way through. We've been preaching through Luke since April 2021, according to my notes, uh, 15 months. So we've had the honor of walking with Jesus here recently to Jerusalem, following in his footsteps like his disciples, uh, with his disciples. I want to say as his disciples. The disciples of Jesus spent three years with him, and it looks to me like our sermon series will probably end up giving us roughly amount, about that amount of dwell time as well. We are tracking with him. We are trekking with him on the road to Jerusalem. To be frank, we need that training of this three-year discipleship course that Jesus offered his first disciples, and we need the lessons that that patient and merciful teacher is giving us all along the way. This is our chance to learn directly from Jesus. We come to Jesus as his disciples with burning questions. In the year of our Lord, 2022, a lot of these questions have the careful, articulate form. What is going on? Jesus, what is happening? Jesus, how do we make sense of what's going on? Or the very articulate question, Jesus, why? Yeah, that's a good question. Though Google is not very good at it. Every day I have questions about things and I just type in a name and type why beside it. And Google always returns answers about what and when and where, but never nails the why question. Our discipleship has the form of hanging on Jesus' words, of listening to his teaching, of, in some cases, of wondering what he's going to say next. So I want to read to you today's passage. It's just these 11 verses in Luke, chapter 12, starting at verse 49. So Luke 12, 49 to 59. Everything I'm about to read is straight from Jesus. If you happen to have a red letter edition of the New Testament, which were invented about 100 years ago and which I think are kind of a nifty idea, everything I'm about to read is in red letters. I wish you could hear the red ink, but I have no way of projecting red in my reading voice. Uh, you know, in um, Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, St. Matthew's Passion, uh, it's a long uh, orchestral choral piece, when Jesus' words are spoken or sung, the string section plays a kind of constant trembling or shimmering sound behind his words. Um, I didn't have time to kind of put that together this morning, and we'd need a whole string section. Um, uh, Bach fans refer to this as Jesus' musical halo, so that you can hear when he talks, everything is humming and vibrating, and there's something special about his words. It's sort of the ear equivalent of the red-letter edition. The whole Bible is the Word of God, but the words of Jesus are the Word of God incarnate. So there's something special about them. And we've got 11 verses of them right here. Luke 12, 49. One foot in Judea, one foot in Los Angeles. We are journeying with Jesus. So listen with both ears as Jesus explains to us how to interpret the present time. Luke 12, 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, 
and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Tiny bit of narration here. He also said to the crowds, now back to the red print, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And so it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Okay, wow, we have questions for Jesus, questions having the form, what in the world is going on? And Jesus has answers for us, but he also has questions for us. Sharp and unexpected questions like, do you think I came to bring peace? And why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? And why don't you know how to interpret the present time? Good questions, uh, Lord, right? <laughs> like, like Jesus is waiting for me to commend his questions. These are sharp and unexpected. That last part, why don't you know how to interpret the present time? I think that's the key to everything here. I want to show you how everything Jesus is saying hangs together around this idea of interpreting the present time. We need to know how to interpret the present time. We, we struggle to understand the day and age in which we are living and through which we are living. So we've got a good match here. We have a need, and Jesus has a lesson about how to interpret the present time. So let me give you the lesson right up front. The only way to interpret the present time is to understand it in light of Judgment Day. Right? That's, that's the main point here. The only way to interpret the present time correctly is to understand it in light of Judgment Day. So to get on Jesus' wavelength, we need to recognize just how incredibly focused he is on the day of judgment. Almost nothing he says makes sense unless you see this. And then once you do see this, almost everything he says starts making sense. Now, you know in cartoons, there's this character of the prophet who walks around with these placards or these portable signboards or sandwich boards uh, on which is printed the message, you probably know this, the end is near right? Or if you're looking at old-fashioned, kind of old-school cartoons, the end is nigh. Have you seen these? Yeah. Well, I want to tell you, I actually knew that guy. His name is Harold. I, I am not kidding. I grew up in the Inland Empire, and there was this guy in the 70s in Palm Springs who we all just called Brother Harold. Um, he was a Jewish Christian. He actually wore these signs. Now, not all the time, um, he handed out tracts. He did sort of cold contact evangelism. He was an incredibly warm and friendly presence. Uh, he would just engage anyone in conversation. He would talk to anyone, anytime about Jesus Christ. He had tremendous message discipline. Brother Harold may have had other opinions about all kinds of other things. I don't know. But what he wanted to talk to everyone about was Jesus Christ. Um, he rode a three-wheeled bike. He visited people in the hospital as kind of a self-appointed chaplain. He lived mostly on day-old bread. I actually had to spend some time on the internet this week looking up to see if I was misremembering or, or sort of hallucinating or, or extrapolating this, but I did find some traces of the existence of Brother Harold 
in the 1970s in Palm Springs and corroborated my, uh, my childhood memories. But occasionally what he would do is he would actually put on these signboards and walk around downtown Palm Springs greeting the merrymakers with this sign that would say on the front, the end is near. Then he'd turn around and the back would say, the end is near. And people would say, what? And then he would explain it to them. He would talk about Judgment Day and the love of God. Sometimes he would wear these signs and they had another message. His other favorite message to wear uh, was a sign that said in the front, God loves you. Then when he turned around, the back said, love him back. It's a, it's a great message, and that's actually deep the more you think about it. God loves you. Love him back. If you combine that with the end is near, you've basically got Brother Harold's message, and it's a pretty nice sketch of the message of the New Testament. God loves you. Love him back because the end is near. Now, I do not want you to picture Jesus as a kind of a Brother Harold guy with these signboards announcing the end of the world. But I don't want you to not think of him like that. I, I, I do kind of want to help us um, sort of jump our understanding uh, out of the rut a little bit to understand how laser-focused Jesus was on Judgment Day. He began his ministry with the message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What we see here in our passage is really just an extension of that basic message as he expands it and explains it and delivers the part of it that he thinks his disciples are ready to hear now. Now, there's more of it he's going to tell when he gets closer to Jerusalem, but I want to focus on what he says about it now. So let's look at his first statement. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now, that is an opening line. Hi, I'm Jesus. I came to cast fire on the earth. I wish it was already burning. No nonsense. No, how you doing? He's definitely not talking about the weather. He'll get to the weather later, right? It's just, I'm here to cast fire. I wish it were already burning. I came to cast fire is a mission statement that takes us all the way back to why Jesus came from heaven above to be born of the Virgin Mary and to take up the cross. He has lots of different ways of expressing his mission. He'll say things like, I came to seek and to save the lost. Um, John's Gospel will say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are lots of ways that Jesus can express his mission from the Father. But one way he can express that mission is this way. I came to cast fire on the earth. Now when he puts it this way, he's describing his mission as the mission of accomplishing salvation by bringing God's righteous judgment. The fire he's talking about has two functions. It purifies and it punishes. Do you remember back in Luke 3, what John the Baptist said about Jesus? Luke 3, verse 16, John said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you hear the two kinds of fire there. There's a, um, uh, there's a fire in which we will be baptized as we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's something purifying, bringing the Holy Spirit, being brought by the Holy Spirit. And then there's the uh, punishment of burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, he shows that he is clear about his mission. He knew exactly why he had come. 
and he knew exactly where things were headed. He was even restless or antsy to get it accomplished. If you remember back in chapter 9, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this whole middle part of Luke, from chapter 9 all the way to, I think, chapter 20, is just really a long road trip. It's on the road with Jesus, chapters 9 through 20, on the way to Jerusalem to get where he is going. Because once he gets to Jerusalem, he will be numbered among the transgressors. He will go to the cross. He will do the thing he came to do. He will die for our sins. And when he does that, he will fulfill these fiery prophecies from the Old Testament. Like Malachi 3. I want you to listen briefly to Malachi 3. Uh, The prophet says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Malachi 3. Also handles Messiah, if you've got kind of a musical ear. I'm not going to sing that, but uh, it's really well done in that handle piece. You should hear it. Now, Jesus will carry out this fiery work of salvation partly when he takes the wrath of God for us and our salvation at the cross. We can think about the cross as a kind of judgment day where the fiery wrath of God is accomplished. But partly he will carry out this fiery prophetic work when he comes again in glory as the judge. There's a first coming of Jesus, and praise God, there's a second coming of Jesus. And as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, somewhere around chapter 21, he'll begin getting deeper inside that distinction between what he accomplishes in his first coming and what he's going to accomplish in his second coming. Um, If you've got like your Old Testament prophecy chart ready to go, starting around chapter 21, as he goes into more detail, you'll be able to say, oh, this part of Malachi applies to the cross, but this part of Malachi applies to the eschatological end times event that is still in our future, and you'll be able to parse that more carefully. I think he doesn't bring it up in all that detail here yet because the main point here is to trust Jesus, to invest your confidence in him, that he is competent to carry out this salvation. Details sold separately, right? Not actually sold, but they'll begin to emerge as Jesus, the wise and patient teacher, understands how much we can take at one time and begins to unfold it more as he gets closer to Jerusalem, actually when he gets in Jerusalem. Jesus will carry out this fiery work then in these two stages, but what matters right here in this verse is that all of that accomplishment, both both parts of that accomplishment I just mentioned, are still in his future. He has to get to Jerusalem to carry out the very thing that he came to do. And he can't wait. He says, I'm here to cast fire and I wish it were already burning. Let's get this started. Let's get there. Why am I even here? Why are we even going to Jerusalem? Let's hasten this and get there and get it going. Another way Jesus expresses this, uh, this forward-leaning desire to accomplish the thing he came to do is with baptism imagery. Look at verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Now, if you're one of the disciples with them there on the road, you're probably thinking, no, we saw you get baptized. That was really cool. The heavens opened, a dove descended. We were all there. Jesus' reply is something like, no, that was just the beginning. That was just the inaugural moment for the purpose of my entire ministry. I am on my way to a big capital B baptism. I am going to be dunked, submerged, inundated, 
overwhelmed with the wrath of divine judgment. I will undergo that baptism. Those where Jesus says, uh, you can't be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. <laughs> he's got a baptism in his future as he's moving toward Jerusalem. He will be immersed in something huge, and he can't wait until it happens. Jesus, in other words, compares his great work of death and resurrection to a kind of water baptism. Right? We've got the water baptism uh, prepared right here. He compares his death and resurrection to a water baptism where he goes under and comes back up. Now, when we get baptized, we do the opposite. We go underwater, and we compare our going underwater and coming back up to a participation in Jesus' death and resurrection. But he's on his way to the death and resurrection and is using the imagery the other way. He's looking forward to undergoing this great baptism for us, and he uses emotional language, language of longing and desire for it. He says, I'm restless, I'm, I'm unfulfilled, I'm yearning. I'm practically in labor pains until I get to the place and do the thing that I came here to do. Why are we on this road trip? Why am I walking to Jerusalem? Why did I come at all? Let's get this done. Jesus is saying here, nothing I do makes sense unless you have the end in mind. And that brings us to uh, verse 51. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Now, let me backpedal just a tiny bit from this. I'm not Jesus' handler. I'm not here to calm him down or, or smooth over what he says. Um, but I do want to say that I came to cast fire is a kind of mission statement, but I came to bring division is not the same kind of thing. It's not a mission statement or a purpose statement for his ministry. That is, the Son of God was not sitting in heaven looking down saying, you know what the problem is down there on earth? Families are just too unified. I'd better go down there and bust them up. Like that, that is not a, this is not a why I came statement. It's not that kind of purpose statement. Um, it's not a, I was sent for the purpose of accomplishing this goal kind of a statement. Instead, it's a warning that necessarily follows from his purpose statement. Because he came to cast fi the fire of God's purifying fire, and because he eagerly seeks to undergo the baptism of death and resurrection, Jesus Christ will be divisive. He's doing something so definite, so decisive, that everybody has to respond to it with a yes or a no, and that makes a division. In fact, we do know, you're not going crazy, we do know that Jesus does bring peace, right? Um, if you were thinking, I'm pretty sure I remember some Bible verses about Jesus being the Prince of Peace and stuff like that, you are right, good job, good job, cubbies, or... Um, Bible memory, whatever it is. You're right. That's, that's in there. Um, right here in Luke, you know, we heard in Luke 2.14, the angels interpret the birth of Jesus as peace on earth. In Luke 7.50, he heals a woman and says, um, you're healed. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. In chapter 10, he sends out his messengers and says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Um, so if you associate the ministry of Jesus with the establishing of peace, you're not wrong. We could go on. In Ephesians 2, it says that he, um, he came to preach peace to the near and the far, that he made peace between, the, between those who are at strife with each other, and that he is, in person, our peace. But the peace that Jesus brings, 
and that is, I don't want to say the dominant note of, of the uh, mission of Jesus, the peace that he brings is for those who receive the peace that he brings. When that peace begins to enter human society, it begins to cause division. And as a case study about that kind of division that his message of peace brings, he applies it to a household, that is, to a family. Even families will be divided by this gospel message. And he puts this as strongly as possible. He makes the math here frustrating on purpose. It's five divided, right? Think about that. If you got five divided, it's never going to be a tie. It's going to be three against two and two against three. There will be winners and losers. It'll be frustrating for somebody, and it might be frustrating for everybody. Clearly one of the moments here where Jesus has one foot in Judea and one foot in Los Angeles is this message about the division that follows on his ministry. He caused division then and there, and he causes division here and now. When you make it clear that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, some people will write you off. Some family members will write you off. They'll set their feet on a path that will diverge more and more from the path you're on. A division will enter into your relationship, and even after your house, and even into your, into your household. Three against two, two against three. Relentless conflict and smoldering resentment. Um, C.S. Lewis was an adult convert, and he had an especially keen eye for this. Before he was a Christian, Christians bugged him partly because Jesus entered their lives and crowded out other relationships. Uh, he just couldn't have the same kind of direct personal fellowship with these people because this Jesus guy was always in the way. And then when he became a Christian, he realized, oh, I have become divided from those who are actually jealous of this person who is in my life. Well, there are three things we need to hear about this division that Jesus brings. First of all, it's inevitable. First thing about the division is it is inevitable. Jesus knows he will cause division because he knows that he's carrying out the plan of salvation, reconciling God and humanity. When he does this, he's gathering his disciples into a reality that is ultimate. I mean it. This relationship with Jesus is ultimate. It's something bigger and greater than family or friends or tribes or affinity groups or electoral politics or nationalities. And just the very idea that there is something transcendent above all of those things is offensive to anybody who doesn't think that there is anything transcendent above all of those things. Let me say that sentence again. The very idea that there is something transcendent above all those things is offensive to anybody who doesn't think there is something transcendent above all those things. Do you see what comes into the world when Jesus Christ comes into the world? To make his point, Jesus takes an example from something that ought to be sacrosanct, family. Family is a divinely instituted good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And when the ultimate thing shows up, family has to bow down before it. It is dethroned or relativized. And you may have noticed that most people don't like being relativized, even relatives, which is kind of weird. When they're pretending to be an absolute good, they don't like being told that they're not the absolute good, something else is. This division is an invitation to put our loves in order so that we can order our loves with the end in mind and they will all fall into their proper places. God and Christ first, all the other loves rightly ordered underneath that. So first of all, the division is inevitable because God himself has shown up in Christ. Second point about the division, it's discouraging. 
It's just terribly, grindingly, depressingly discouraging. And I suspect this is why Jesus goes out of his way to warn us about it. It will hit you harder if it hits you by surprise. So Jesus forewarns us about the consequences of following him. It will not all be smooth. There will be trouble. There will be interpersonal conflict and estrangement. So don't let that discouragement draw you off course. Stay strong. You've been warned that it's coming. That's the second point. The third point about this division is it's all on Jesus. That is to say, you could almost say it's, it's, it's his fault, if I can put it that way. He takes the blame for it right here. Or maybe better yet, he takes the responsibility. And that means that your only responsibility is to make sure that when division happens, it really is about Jesus' mission. For some of us, this means taking care not to be unnecessarily divisive ourselves. You are not the divider-in-chief, right? Because you're not the ultimate thing that outranks family and friendship. This is not your program to run, and divisiveness should not belong on your resume. I'm afraid we all know Christians who act like I came to bring division as sort of their life verse or something. And it's terrible. They latch onto passages like this as an excuse or an attempt to sanctify the fact that deep down, they're just jerks, right? <laughs> Jesus called himself a stumbling stone that everyone was going to have to stumble over. And we should acknowledge that. Like, people are going to hit Jesus and they're going to trip. But that doesn't mean we should trip them when they're still 100 yards away from Jesus, right? We should actually smooth out the path and clear away all the obstacles to get them to the stumbling stone so they can hit their foot nice and hard on it and go down clean, right? So, so be nice. You know, you might even consider being winsome. Uh, but, like, just get them to the one thing that should cause offense and that will cause division. Remember that Jesus is the ultimate, final, uh, end-is-near guy. When all is said and done, at the end of the day, he will cause division. Now, at this point, Jesus has made it clear that he's carrying out this fiery, floody, baptismal, divisive work of salvation, and the end is near. He knows that God's judgment on sin is inevitable. He's been preaching, repent, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand for three years now. And though he's succeeded in drawing a crowd, that crowd is not repenting. So he turns on them with this prophetic rebuke all of a sudden. Verse 54, he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky? But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, this is dead serious subject matter, but I think Jesus is also using some humor here. He draws a kind of a comical contrast between people's ability to read signs and make plans when it comes to weather versus their utter inability to read the signs of the times, the kingdom is at hand, and act accordingly. Repent. So in Palestine, clouds in the west means incoming water from the Mediterranean, right? But when from the south means it's coming up from the desert, dryness and heat, a a Sirocco. It's kind of like our Santa Anas. And everybody's out looking at the horizon, playing amateur meteorologists, weather experts, confidently estimating how the weather is going to go. And by the way, they're right. Jesus commends them on that, uh, at least as right as you can be about the weather. It's always a little iffy. Jesus mock commends them. Oh, You guys can see the future by watching the clouds and sticking your finger up in the air and testing the wind. And then he just hits them with a sudden change of subject to spiritual matters. Why don't you weather geniuses try interpreting the present time? You know it's going to rain, 
but do you know what time it is? It is time to repent. Jesus calls these weather buffs hypocrites. Now, we usually use the word hypocrite to mean something like someone who pretends to be something they aren't or someone who has a standard for others that they don't live up to themselves. But that doesn't really fit the context here. And Jesus tends to use the word hypocrite a little bit differently when he uses it. By the way, do you, know, you want to know the Greek word for hypocrite? I looked it up. The Greek word for hypocrite is hypocrite. So that's why we translate it that way. It's just hypocrite. When Jesus uses the word hypocrite, he means something like, you are playing around with lesser details that are insignificant compared to the real thing. The real thing is a big deal, and you're pretending weather is what matters, but ignoring what really matters. That's the kind of hypocrisy he's after here. Hypocrites. Redirect your attention to reality, to the things that matter most. Wake up, pay attention, stop pretending the kingdom of God is not at hand. We're all going to die. The world is going to end. The weather is not going to matter. We're going to stand face to face with God. The kingdom is at hand, so act like it. When people say the church is full of hypocrites, they usually mean fakers. If Jesus were to say the church is full of hypocrites, in this sense, he would mean triflers. People who are so distracted by earth and sky that they trick themselves into ignoring the great horizon of all history, the coming of the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes to a point in the last three verses. He tells a little mini parable. Actually, I'm not sure it's a parable. Luke is especially full of elaborate parables. I don't know if you noticed this. Um, things like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son and the Rich Man and Lazarus, just fantastic storytelling straight from Jesus himself. He makes up characters and gives them dialogue and tells a story. Um, if we didn't have Luke, we wouldn't have a number of these best parables. They're a special feature of what Luke put in his gospel. Here's a little miniature parable. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Now, it's kind of just a warning. He's talking to you. He doesn't say once upon a time there was a man who had an accuser, and that's why I say it's a, it's a, it's a quasi-parable. It's parabolic or something like that, right? It's, um, Jesus is appealing to something like common sense. Why do you judge for yourselves what is right? It's as if he's saying, think. I know you make good decisions about things like this all the time. If you know what's coming, you take action now based on what you know about what is coming soon. So do that. Interpret the present time as the time that is present now before the coming of the day of judgment. And then he tells this little mini story. As you go with your accuser, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Now the point here is simple and obvious. While you're on the way, you have a brief season of opportunity. Seize the day and settle your disputes before it's too late. Once you arrive, a predictable chain of events will kick into place. He drags you to the judge, the judge hands you the officer, the officer puts you in prison. Jesus piles up all these names of Roman processes and officials to make the automatic or inevitable aspect of the situation clear. Clank, clank, clank. Right? You fall into a series of events that will definitely be completed once they start. There's a one-way trip here with no off-ramps, a conveyor belt, or a moving sidewalk that is definitely taking you to this conclusion. As I say, the point is simple and obvious, but the mini-parable is a little bit mysterious in other ways. For example, I'm not quite sure how to identify the characters in the story. 
Is the accused person, you, for instance, guilty or innocent? Is the accuser legitimate or corrupt? So briefly, here are three options to try on. First possibility, you and, you, you and your accuser are just fighting. And it doesn't really matter who's right or wrong, and that's why Jesus doesn't mention who's right or wrong. Just get it resolved before you get to court. If this is the case, we should picture the courtroom as a place you want to avoid, and the strategic move is something like resolving the dispute between yourselves while you've got the chance. This reminds me a little bit of the days when uh, our grace group had lots of kids around, and we would dispatch them in good faith to the backyard, and they would play nicely mostly. But then contention would arise, and they would come in, and it's a it's a, he did this, and he started it, and no, he didn't, yes, I did. And I would have to, as the um, designated disciplinarian, I suppose, I would have to wade in and say, all right, let's sort this out. I would ask a few clarifying questions. And then once the discovery phase of the inquiry was over, I would ask them if they really wanted me to get involved in this backyard dispute and impose a solution. They would pretty quickly glance at each other and decide, no, anything we come up with is better than what he comes up with. So whoever has to forgive or forget or excuse or, or whatever, let's just do this without getting the grown-ups involved, it turns out. Now, um, I made it always clear that it would probably involve a lot less free play time for everybody if I imposed my solution. The kids were smart. They almost always found a way to work this out. This is a possibility, I think, left open in the way Jesus gives this admonition. It could be that it's just like, quit your fussing and don't make me come back there, right? Um, this interpretation, though, might be a little too leveling. There's no sense that, like, you and your accuser are, are both looking to avoid something. So the second possibility with what Jesus gives us here is that you're innocent and your accuser is corrupt. But the judge can't be relied on to vindicate the innocent in this case. So you need to plea bargain to avoid the judge believing your accuser. Now, this is a bad situation for an innocent person to be in, but there's a certain shrewdness to taking the plea with your accuser and avoiding the stricter sentence from the judge. I just want to mention that as a possibility. I've, I've, I've been sitting with this uh, mini parable for a while and thinking, well, it just says there's an accuser. It doesn't necessarily indicate the actual status of the guilt here. But then there's a third possibility, and, and this is, to me, the, the one that most strikes me as I read it. You're guilty, and your accuser is correct. Now, if this is the right way to read the story, then your brief window of opportunity is a real bonus because you deserve what is coming to you. But if only your accuser will agree to some kind of settlement for some reason, you have a chance to avoid the worst penalty. Now, if this is the right way to read it, then the story kind of opens up into a spiritual interpretation that meets us where we are in the present time. We are sinners, and we have offended. The one we have offended is right to accuse us because we truly owe him a debt. On this reading, the one who justly accuses us is God. But the judge to whom we are being taken is also God. So to make this work out, we have to be ready to see the amazing paradox that God is both waiting to judge and willing to pardon. That the God with whom we have to do is both just and merciful. He is the one who patiently holds open for us a time the present time in which we can repent. He is also the one who stands at the end of that time at judgment day in complete righteousness and wrath against sin. This is how to interpret the present time. 
Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Today makes sense as the present time because it is the time before judgment day. Knowing that judgment day is coming, that the end is near, is what gives you understanding of the present time. It gives you what you need to know to interpret it correctly. Meanwhile, Jesus Christ, who spoke these words, is the one who has made the way of salvation. He came to do it all, to cast fire on the earth and purify, to be baptized with the baptism of death and resurrection for us, to separate between his followers and his opponents, to give us the key to interpreting the present day as the day of salvation. It's not the end yet, but the end is near. God loves you. Love him back. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are holy and merciful, full of righteousness and full of compassion. Thank you for sending your son, our Lord Jesus, to cast fire on the earth, make a way of purification. Thank you for the baptism with which he was baptized. Thank you for holding open the day of salvation and for calling out to us. Thank you, Father, for loving us with such zeal and commitment and tender care. Thank you that you desire us to understand the times and to interpret the present correctly. Holy Father, gather us to yourself and gather us together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.